Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. I wanted to speak with Quentin Stafford Fraser because he was involved in the first webcam. And I say web in quotes because it wasn't technically on the web, but, well, you'll understand the distinction when you listen to the episode. But Dr. Stafford Fraser has been involved in so many things right up to the present day, that I couldn't help but ask him about the rest of his fascinating career. So, in this episode, come for the webcam history, but stay to hear about studying computer science under the founding legends of the field, launching the first web server at Cambridge, the development of virtual network computing, augmented reality, and even the present and future of smart and autonomous car technology. I think this really is one of the best oral histories that we've been privileged to capture so far, so I know you're going to enjoy this episode with Quentin Stafford Fraser. Quentin Stafford Fraser, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. I love the podcast. I um, This is going to seem sort of a pedestrian first question, but I feel like it's kind of apropos for what we'll be talking about. Um, I would have to imagine that maybe you were interested in computers at a young age and or uh, do you remember when, when you realized that, that computers were what you wanted to devote your professional life to? I certainly, yes, I was very interested at a young age. In fact, I can I can remember the very first computer I ever used, uh, and by that I mean actually got my hands on, which was in the Science Museum in London. They had a, a mainframe there which ran two or three very, very simple programs, but you could actually get your hands on a keyboard and use a real computer, and I, I, I don't know what age I must have been then, but yes, ever since then... Um, uh, I, I have been very interested in computers. And I think I count myself as very lucky. I think people of my kind of generation, um, a little bit older and a little bit younger, have almost seen the whole of, not quite the whole of computing history, but uh, stuff, you know, back back from the days when we had to solder together transistors to make computers <laughs> up to, you know, writing apps for iPads. And I count myself very fortunate to have kind of gone right through that spectrum. Um, whereas I imagine younger people probably, you know, so much is handed to you on a plate that uh, obviously that has advantages as well. But no, it's been it's been fun to to learn it almost kind of from the ground up. Well, and uh, you have had the, the benefit of learning it um, at, at Cambridge, which um, many people will know is you know one of one of the the world renowned places for uh computing research computing science going back to almost the 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 very beginning of computing science and so when you go to university you 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 study computer science at cambridge right yes that's right at least i i st- started with a year of general engineering because computing at that point wasn't even a full 3 year course so you had to do a year of something else beforehand so i did engineering and then i moved to computer science and there were many things I loved about that change, and and one of them was that computing was still, relatively speaking, a, a young topic in the university, and a lot of the people who had been 
very important key pioneers in computing were still walking the corridors and giving lectures. So um, I had lectures from people like uh, Morris Wilkes, who was um, the guy behind EDSAC and EDSAC2, which we here would claim was the first real usable, useful computer. Um, it was... Uh, it was a general purpose computer and it um it could store its own programs electronically and it actually provided a real service to the university um rather than just being something in a in a research lab so people in manchester and princeton and other places would claim that they had the first real computer but we like to think that cambridge at least has a good a good claim on this and morris wilkes was the guy who ran that project um i made friends with uh, David Wheeler, who, um, amongst many other things, uh, is um, credited in uh, having the first ever PhD in computer science and with inventing the subroutine. <laughs> this is something right. so, so fundamental. It's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, going to college and studying physics and finding you're having a cup of tea with Isaac Newton. I mean, it, it's, it, it, was, it was really good stuff. Um, and, uh, and Martin Richards lectured me. He was behind the BCPL language, which very few people ever heard of but, um, nowadays. But uh, out of BCPL came a language called B, and out of that came a language called C, which many people have heard of. <laughs> so... Um, but more recently, and, and you know, particular interest for me was that Cambridge was the place where um, Clive Sinclair was based, who made you know the very first computer I ever owned, uh, and people like Andy Hopper and Herman Hauser, who built um, Acorn computers. Now, Acorn is not so well known outside the U, uh, the UK, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it it was the company that made the BBC Micro, which was. Um, essentially i think transformative on for the uk's you know digital it industry because it was a wonderful computer designed for teaching and it was it was comparable um in time and power i suppose to the commodore vic 20 that kind of mm-hmm. period um but it was uh, a more capable machine and designed very much for education and most of us kind of cut our teeth on that thing and um acorn computers led on to uh the what was originally the acorn risk machine and then uh became known as the arm processor so um the arm processor also is you know very much a cambridge creation so right. yes for me right. for me cambridge was a wonderful place to come because it had so much history but back at that point a lot of it was still fairly recent history for your undergraduate work uh what are what are some of the things that you're you're researching and some of the things you're interested in well my undergraduate work was um it was you know fairly basic computer science but just after i i finished it i got a job um with my college in cambridge so the university here is split into lots of colleges um which are kind of like dorms on steroids for um, <laughs> for for american listeners uh and um so my first real job after my undergrad uh was looking after all of the college's computers which wasn't very many in those days but um but it was uh, it, it was still uh, a fairly large number. We had something like 100 computers in our college, which mm. was unusual mm. at that time. And they, most of them, almost all of them, were not networked. And so I was looking after these machines that were essentially being used by most people as glorified typewriters and were running, you know, DOS version 1 and Word right, version right. 1 and things like that. But um, there were some people doing some more interesting uh, things with them. And... Um, one of the fellows of the college, uh, a chap named uh, Anthony Edwards, was very interested in Venn diagrams. Um, Venn, uh, 
John Venn had been a fellow of the college in his own right in, uh, you know, considerably earlier. And, uh, and everyone knows the Venn diagrams, the sort of three overlapping circles that you get um, to show whether things are a member of one or more sets or some combination of them. But often people don't stop and think, what would you do if you wanted to show more than three sets? Mm. It's actually quite hard to come up with a shape that you can draw on a bit of paper that gives you four overlapping sets where you've got all of the different combinations of uh, of possible set membership. So um, if you think of it in digital terms, uh, a circle on a Venn diagram represents a bit. And so three sets gives you three bits. There are eight different areas that... Um, that can be represented by mm. those bits. Mm. So, so what do you do if you actually want to have more than three sets? And Venn himself kind of thought about this quite a bit. Um, but Anthony Edwards came up with a way of doing it, which is a little difficult to describe <laughs> on a, an audio podcast. But um, you can look up, uh, you can look up online and uh, and and see an Edwards Venn diagram. And I was in his office one day and he was showing me his bit of, I think, Pascal code that uh, that was printing these Venn diagrams out on his, uh, it would have been a dot matrix printer at the time. And so he could draw a sort of five or even six set Venn diagram. Now, um, I thought this was quite fun, but I had just taken delivery of a laser printer, which I think was only about the second or third one that the college had. And of course, this had much more resolution than the... Um, than the the dot matrix so i thought ah maybe i could produce a higher resolution venn diagram with more sets so i went back to my office and i started thinking about this and i quickly hit a problem because the the printer had i don't know maybe 300 dots per inch or something and i wanted to construct an image of this multi-set venn diagram and i realized that my pc which probably had 512 or 640k of memory didn't have enough memory to hold the image of the page that I wanted to right, create. Right. So either I had to do some really clever stuff to work out to, to kind of create bits of that image on the fly and just send a few lines at a time to the printer or I was going to be stuck. And then I realized that the printer itself must have enough memory to store the, the image of a whole page. It had more memory than my PC did. And, um, it was also a PostScript printer, which meant it was a fairly expensive one in those days. And so I wrote a little program in PostScript, which was a fairly short file, um, which uh, where you could basically change one parameter in the PostScript file saying how many sets you wanted and just send this text file to your printer. And it went and sat and thought for a very long time and then churned out a printer. And I could print, you know, seven or eight set Venn diagrams with this. And uh, But I knew somebody who worked on the Cambridge Science Park or a friend of a friend um, who worked in a company that had, a, I want to say, Linotype, Lintronics printer, um, which I think was even back then, maybe a thousand DPI, something like that. And so I sent him my, uh, my postscript file. And a little while later, he sent me an acetate. I wish I still had it. I think it crumbled into dust. But I believe it was the world's first 10-set Venn diagram that was actually uh, printed in any kind of physical form. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so that was one of my little hobbies back then. Hmm. Uh, um, you, um, uh, you're, you're working around this time. You joined the, the, the systems group. Is that, is that what we've already described? Or is that something that comes? Yes. No, that's right. I, I moved on from essentially doing PC support in my college to, uh -huh. um, to the university computer lab where I had studies as an undergraduate. And I was a research assistant there um, in a group. It was a project called the Fair Isle Project, which, if I remember rightly, was funded by HP. 
And we were looking at multimedia networks. Now, back in those days, we had Ethernet networks, but Ethernet wasn't Cat5 cabling like it is now. Right. Ethernet was 10 megabit, and it was coax cables that you ran around the room and little T-pieces would come off and plug into the back of each computer. And you could do a lot of things with this, but you certainly couldn't do broadcast quality um, sort of TV-type video. And so we were looking in this group into how you might do that. What would you actually need in terms of network architectures to be able to do broadcast quality video? And one of the things that hadn't really solidified then was um, which Ethernet standard was, which networking standard was going to win for local area networks. You know, Ethernet had been fairly successful at the 10 megabit level, but there was also Token Ring at the time, which was quite popular. And um, there were also ATM networks. That's nothing nothing to do with cash machines that's asynchronous transfer mode networks um and the they're a bit different because what the way uh, you make connections on an atm network is you basically set up a connection from where you are to where you want the the packets to end up all the way through the network and then you can get guaranteed bandwidth on that link so it's really really good for doing multimedia stuff it has some other failings so is it uh, is it both circuit switching and packet switching or is... um it's essentially circuit switching okay. you set up the circuits in advance and that's and it's um you know still used in in many situations as you know the backhaul for for um mobile phone networks and things but it never in the end became very popular on the desktop but back then um you were, we were just starting to get 100 megabit Ethernet, and we had 25 megabit ATM networks, and they would give you comparable um, multimedia performance, uh, comparable general bandwidth, and probably the ATM would give you rather better multimedia performance. And certainly as we were stepping it up to kind of 150 megabits, um, the ATM networks were, were definitely superior. In the end, other forces you know, took over, and Ethernet was what became popular on the desktop. But that's the stuff we were looking at. So we had um, lots of equipment that, uh, that did simple multimedia stuff, including um, some video cameras, uh, which back then were you know, expensive toys, and uh, not many people had them. And we had some frame capture cards, which would let us um, connect those video cameras to our dedicated single board computers in a rack that we had created for testing out these ATM networks. And so um, so we had various fun toys. We could do multimedia stuff um, in this lab. Another thing that was happening at about, about this time was um, Linux was just starting to be uh, popular so um or well actually not really popular back then it was still just getting off the ground i i remember um i had a, a pc i could run linux on because um i had i think it was a 720 kilobyte floppy disk um and uh, and that's what you really needed to get linux going but you couldn't really run x windows on it that needed two floppy drives or ideally a hard disk and i had never had something as valuable as a machine with a hard disk and this is this is what 1990 this is 1999 yeah. 91 yes and okay. and at least i'd never had one that um that had that luxury that i could just play with you know for some um you know uh hobby project like this you know new linux operating system uh but i was also intrigued by the idea that i could conceivably own a unix based 
machine, which beforehand had only been something you hoped to get access to on the university network. And the idea that you could run it on a, on, on something you could actually own was, was quite exciting. And there was a spare PC uh, in, in, the, in the lab in this room on which I could, you know, which someone had finished using for some other project. So I cannibalized it and I put Linux on it. And that was part of my love affair with Linux, which has, has gone on ever since. Um, but we were all working there in the uh, in this room that we we had a habit of of naming rooms uh, and computers and projects in those days after kind of um, classical mythological mythological names and characters. So this was the Trojan Room, and um, there were a group of about uh, ten of us, I think, working in there. Um, I was a humble research assistant there were some people doing phds uh, and they were all mostly doing stuff to do with either um these low-level networking protocols or or particularly how you ship multimedia over computer networks so that so that's kind of what i worked on first of all there well let's this is the perfect time to to go into the story of of the the trojan room uh coffee cam so um as you say you're you're in the trojan room and uh, the there's multiple levels in the building you're working in and the there happens to be one coffee pot that is uh one or two flights away from you right yeah. well actually now i i have to set the record straight i have been misrepresented in the media sometimes here because um because actually i i sat right next to the coffee machine we ah. had this we had this really terrible coffee machine, uh, but it was all we had. <laughs> so, um, you know, we we felt that uh, a free, uh, freely available supply of caffeine was um, was very important for computer science research. And uh, actually, it wasn't freely available. We had to pay for it, uh, but it was it was still pretty awful. It was just a, a coffee drip filter machine. Uh, but we only had one which we shared between all the members of this this group who you know were ten or fifteen of us by this point and um some of the some of us were in the Trojan room and so we're right close to the coffee pot uh but some of people were you know maybe on another floor up a staircase round the corner, and so they tended not to know when fresh coffee had been made and so um so those of us who were close by definitely had an unfair advantage here. And trust me, the coffee wasn't wasn't very good even when it was fresh. But if it had been sitting on the hot plate for a while, it was really awful. So um, one day, uh, a friend and I, Paul Jardetsky and I, um, looked at some of the bits of multimedia kit that we had left over from a recent project. And we thought, we ought to be able to do something about this for the benefit of our fellow man. You see, this was very much a, a philanthropic project. And um, so... We got uh, a little camera which we could connect to one of our single board computers, and we, um, we I think I gripped the camera in a retort stand or something and pointed it at the coffee pot, uh, and Paul wrote some software that ran on this little single board computer, um, which was using our network stacks. It uh, it wasn't over TCP/IP in those days. It was using our remote procedure call system. Uh, it certainly wasn't using anything like HTTP because the web hadn't come along yet. And um, but what it did do was make available the image of this coffee pot on our local network, um, and that was something that you could then see if you ran a little bit of uh, software that I wrote, which would basically put an icon-sized image of the coffee pot in the corner of your screen. So as long as you were running our networking stack and on our local network and running my bit of software on your desktop, you could then 
as you were working, just glance down and see this picture of the coffee pot and um, and decide on your coffee consumption strategy, you know, based on whether the, it looked as if it was full or empty or filling up or perhaps going down. It was only updated um, maybe every 20 seconds or right. so. Right. We, we, yeah. we should say that this isn't, you know, live video as you would think of it today. It's, no, it's, no. Grabbing, it's grabbing a still <laughs> image every every couple seconds or whatever interval. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and actually, you know, that was part of the charm of it. Everybody else in this group was was working flat out to see whether you could really get, you know, TV quality, that standard definition TV quality over a network in glorious color, and could you get the colors just right and so on. And here, Paul and I did this thing which had an image that was probably... 120 pixels square or something like that and grayscale and about three frames a minute <laughs> but it was still actually really useful for giving you a bit of information that we you didn't currently otherwise have and that kind of got me interested which we can come back to later in this idea that cameras don't have to be pointing at people to be useful most people were thinking about wow if we had cameras connected to a computer network we could do Mm. video conferencing and things like that and i thought yes that's great that's interesting but what else can you do what can you point cameras at to help you uh how understand better the world around you and or, yeah help. just deliver data <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. right so so there was no other easy way really to wire up a, a that coffee pot and uh and we happened to have a camera and so we pointed it at, at this thing now um as i say it was back in those days it required my special bit of software to be able to view the image but it turned out actually to be one of the more useful things i did while <laughs> while working for that group because everybody in the in the group ran this program so that they could keep an eye on the coffee pot and um about the time i was uh, i was finishing in that group and and moving on to um to work on my phd um this thing called the world wide web started now, actually, the World Wide Web was just beginning about the time we did this, but early web browsers didn't display images. They only displayed text. You could have a couple of different sizes of text. I think you could change the color of your text, uh, but they didn't show any images. They were very much a hypertext system. And um... Do you mind if I, if I could interrupt you real quick? Mm. Because I, just, I, I want to do an aside here. There's there's lots of uh, accounts written about, about the web being developed and the, the various steps of, of its development. I'm actually curious because I, I don't know that I've read a lot about um, web adoption from the other side. So, so you know, you're, you're at Cambridge and you start to hear about it. Can, can you tell me just a little bit about, like, hearing about the web as a project, as a new technology um, at, at, at Cambridge, you know, in your role yeah. as a computer scientist? Yeah, well, I was... Um, I heard about it because when I was doing my PhD, I was funded by Xerox. Now, Xerox had a little lab here, which was an offshoot of their Palo Alto lab park. This we we called it Europark at the time. And we had very close connections with with the Palo Alto lab. And so we tended to hear news from the valley uh, fairly early on. And um, I remember one of my friends calling me into his office one day to show me this uh, bit of software that someone had sent him um, from Palo Alto, uh, which was called Mosaic. And it was... um, it was this web browser thing and i had heard something about the web but it was still brand new then and uh, this was back in the day when there were probably 
oh, let's think, when I saw it, I'm guessing there were maybe four or five web servers online in total. Right? That was it. So you didn't need bookmarking or favorite systems in your web browser because you could remember all of the addresses of any website you might want to go to, and they were all linked up pretty much anyway. So, um, so, so that was about the state of it. Um, but I, the, the thing that for me made the web really interesting was it was a very quick way to get a nice user interface for something, um, whatever that source of information may be. And it was really easy to plug all sorts of different sources of information into uh, the back end. Writing a, a very basic web server is, is, is very straightforward. You can do it in a few lines of code. So, so what you're saying, sorry to interrupt again, is, mm, yeah. uh, what, to someone that's an early adapter, the thing that uh, really excites you about the web is, is its extensibility. Like the, there's so many different things that you can do with it that's right that's right it was it looked nicer i mean the the display of the mosaic uh browser was already fairly nice looking you know text was not generally rendered in a very beautiful way on unix workstations of the time anyway and so anything that made it look even vaguely pleasing uh, was a good starting point and on this you could take something that you know just put out fairly raw data and make it look nice uh make it accessible remotely to people and um so you could take whatever experiment you were doing at the time and plug the data into this worldwide web system and then maybe write some documentation about it and uh and and point your friends at it and they could get it get at it even if they weren't running your applications or sitting next to you or whatever they might be somewhere more distant so that was one thing that excited me about it the other thing is that over the next you know year or two um i found that uh, the National Science Foundation, which ran a lot of the U.S. Um, internet backbone at right, that time, right. um, would publish their statistics on some of the key backbone links for how much data was being used by various different types of traffic. Because, of the course, the internet carried uh, email, it carried FTP traffic, it carried NNTP news, Waves, it carried yeah. It way, yeah, all sorts of stuff um, in those days. Gopher was just, you know, coming. Um, so, uh, but I remember um, looking at this new HTTP protocol and it was something like, I think when I first started looking at it, it was about 120th in the ranking or something like that. And uh, and so I started capturing these statistics. I wrote a little script which would capture these statistics once a month and would plot a graph of, of what was using the most bandwidth. And I could see this HTTP thing screaming up through the ranks. It was like some, you know, horse that's at the back of a race that, you know, everyone thinks is never going to get anywhere. And it was clearly going to be a front runner really soon. And thing, the idea started to dawn that, this could even get bigger than something like FTP. You know, that was amazing mm -hmm. at the time, or email. And um, and so, you know, it was at position 120, and then the next month I looked at it and it was at position 80, and the next month I looked at it and it was at position 65 or whatever. And you could see that in a fairly short number of months, it was becoming one of the top 10 users of the internet, and that was just amazing. So... Um, at first, we didn't know whether this particular thing that we'd seen in the form of the Mosaic browser was going to take off or whether it was just another fun curiosity out of a research lab somewhere. Um, and uh, But you could tell from this trend that obviously we weren't the only ones finding it interesting. And so I started to look at it more seriously and um, take various things I was doing and, and start making them available in, in web form. Well, right. And, and as you say, um, it was relatively easy 
to do something like set up a a um a web server so you i, mm. I believe you're involved in setting up the the first web server at, at cambridge well i think so i think so i haven't had anyone contradict me on this yet i um it, i ran um I, I was spending some of my time in xerox and some of my time in in the university and um i certainly ran one on my workstation in the university and I don't believe anybody else in the university, or certainly not in the computing lab, who would probably have been the first, um, was running one at the time. Now, back then, there wasn't this convention that your web server would be called www or something. So my workstation was had the memorable name of, I think it was pelican.cl.cam.ac.arc, <laughs> right? um, which you would never find. We, of course, we didn't have search engines or anything then. But if you happen to know that uh, particular URL, you could point a web browser at it and, and you could see some stuff that I had put up there. I don't even remember very much what it was at the time. But um, one or two students were starting to hear about this web project thing, and no one in the university ran an official web server that they could put stuff on at that time. So um, they would point people at me and say, oh, I think Quentin's got one of those running on his workstation. Go and see if he'll let you put your script on there as well. So um, so I think I possibly ran the first web server in Cambridge, and uh, and certainly I think the first one in the university. Um, and uh, and more and more people started to want to do things with this, uh, you know, with this new technology. And so um, it was clear to me that this was going to be big. So uh, just because I want to um, uh, finish up with with the sort of the story of of the the coffee pot <laughs> camera, yeah. At, yeah. at some point you guys get the bright idea to uh, take the the coffee pot camera and and put it on the web, and so then it's not. It's not beholden just to your, your your network that you guys are running right there. That's right, yes. So in, um, I think it was early 1993, um, w- the first version, Mark Anderson proposed this idea that there could be an image tag in HTML so you could have images in your web pages as well as just text. And uh, in early 93... Um, there was a version of Mosaic that um, that could actually support images. And so people started changing their web pages to include the logo of their organization or a picture of their girlfriend or a graph of their results or something like that. And um, we had this idea, uh, which um, is really, really, really obvious now, but was, you know, novel at the time, which was when a web browser asks for a particular image, um, it goes to a particular URL and the web server gives it the image back, usually a file from the file system. But suppose the web server gave it back a different image each time. What would happen? Would the browser cope with this? We didn't know. So we thought, uh, where have we got a source of constantly changing images? Um, aha, okay, the the, the webcam. The, the, well, it wasn't a webcam then. The coffee pot camera. <laughs> uh, and so... Um, we, uh, a couple of friends of mine, Martin Johnson and Dan Gordon, basically um, took the the output of the coffee pot camera and essentially ma- enabled it to produce HTTP. Um, and so you could then embed this image in a web page. And uh, when you went to that web page, you could maybe get a, an image of the coffee pot full or possibly half full or possibly empty. And you didn't know it was really exciting stuff. <laughs> it was so... Um, this this seems crazy now, but at the time, there wasn't very much new, you know, on the web. And the idea that um, some people would take a really valuable and unusual thing like uh, 
a computer with a camera connected it connected to it and devote that to the problem of seeing how much coffee was in their thirty dollar coffee pot um, was was kind of a sufficiently wacky idea that it got people's attention. Well, and also though because now it's on the web, um, I could if I were in California, exactly. I could see if a coffee pot is full or not in in Cambridge in the UK. It, exactly, that's right. You had essentially a live image of somewhere else in the world from wherever you were, and this was something that normal people didn't get to see really you know except through broadcast television and things like that and so um even if it was a, a crazy thing to look at you could do this and so people would call us up and ask us to you know put our hand or put something in front of the camera so that they could see whether it really did change and one of the first things we discovered was that um we needed to point a light at it because we got people complaining that uh, that they went to look at this thing and it was it was just a black image and that was because they hadn't realized it was the middle of the night over here and so they were, you know we were suddenly dealing with cross time zone computing as well and so uh, uh, so yet yeah, it had a little angle poised light pointed at it, um, and yes, as a side effect of putting this on the web, um, people didn't need to run our special networking stack and my special bit of software, and uh, and so it meant anyone in the building could view how much coffee was in the coffee pot, but it also meant anybody in the world could view how much coffee was in our coffee pot, and this kind of uh, crazy idea caught people's um, imagination, I think, and so um, so it got a lot of media attention, and it it went on getting media attention for quite a while because um, it we we used to joke back then about internet years being like dog years you know everything happens seven times as fast on the internet kind of thing and so um think something which uh was a novelty then went to being a historic artifact in a very small number of years so first of all journalists would call me up and say you know what's this new coffee pot camera thing and then they would call me up and and say um you know uh, can you tell me about where webcams started? And then they would, you know, call me up because it would become a historic artifact, you know, and, and this was um, all in a period of a small number of years and only on the internet could, could something happen at that kind of speed. Um, I remember um, I was, well, the, the biggest news, of course, came after about 10 years when the um, the university computer lab was moving to a new building in another part of Cambridge. And the one thing that had always always been kind of consistent about the Trojan Room coffee pot, as we called it, was that it had always been in the Trojan Room, and the Trojan Room wasn't going to exist anymore. And so also, the kit it was running on was really getting quite old by that point, and we didn't really use these networking protocols anymore, and uh, there were all sorts of reasons why it was becoming a little bit harder to maintain. We'd gone through uh, quite a few coffee pots as well by that point, and... Um, and so we made this decision to uh, to close it down. I would have had about 10 years. Um, you could say that, you know, 10 years in internet time was a lifetime in, in real time. So that was, that was, you know, it seemed sensible that we could should close it down when there was no longer a Trojan Room. And of course, this generated a whole big new media storm because all of a sudden this thing that was an icon of the early web, um, you know, the early web having been about eight years ago, um, was going to uh, w- was going to be turned off. And at that point, everybody was trying to get attention for their business and the fact that their business now had a website. And we were saying, oh, we've done that website site thing we're going to turn it off and um 
at one point, there was one week in which I was quoted on the front page of the London Times and the Washington Post, <laughs> which, you know, for talking about this, this little coffee, I will never do This is kind of publicity people will kill for, you know, and right. I would never, I probably will never do anything else in my lifetime that uh, A, was so uh, trivial and B, got so much coverage. But there you go. Yeah. So actually, I, you know what, um, I'll, I'll ask you about that again at the end. Um, but let, let's uh, let's let's come back to the chronology of your career. So, the the coffee pot cam was launched around the time that you are working on your PhD, I, I believe. And um, can you tell me about what what your PhD thesis was? Thing uh, it, the the project working on uh, Brightboard and and Brightboard, things like that. Yeah. Well, Brightboard, I, I, the coffee pot camera had taught me, as I say, that there was interesting stuff you could do by pointing cameras at things other than people. And um, so I started thinking about what else you might do if if we ever got to the stage where cameras were actually affordable enough that you could use them as general purpose input devices, right, rather than something that you might have specially installed in a video conferencing room. And we were just starting to get to the point where um, cameras could be made on a single chip. And I realized that if you could do that, rather than requiring, I think they would have, you know, three CCD chips before that one for red, green and blue, and they were expensive and so on. But if you could make them on a single chip and put a fairly cheap lens in front of it, they would have no moving parts. And there was this idea, outrageous idea, that they might one day even be cheaper than keyboards and mice, which, of course, they they have become mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, suppose we had lots and lots of cameras and maybe even every computer had one rather than just our one computer in the computer lab. What might you be able to do with them? And so part of the inspiration for my PhD was um, trying to get computers to understand a little bit more of the um, the world around them. I think, um, I think it was Nicholas Negroponte about this time I heard saying that he wished his computer had as much intelligence as the urinals in airports because they knew when you were standing right, in front right. of them where your computer didn't. Right? It couldn't even tell that. Um, and so um, the the idea was, uh, was born that you could, uh, at that time you could start to create kind of um, gooey programs using things like um, HyperCard, where even school kids could create... Um, simple apps that would say do this if you click your mouse in this corner of the screen and my idea was could you make something that would say do this if there's movement in this corner of the room and you know could we get to to such a simple use of of video processing so so that was the underlying idea i was working towards but my particular implementation of this was a thing i called brightboard um which involved pointing a camera at a whiteboard uh, and trying to understand a little bit of what was going on on the whiteboard you back in those days you could get electronic whiteboards but they were usually um big sort of wardrobe sized boxes that were that were back projected uh, had special pens um that uh, that could be picked up by by some sort of sensor inside the box and they cost you know thousands of dollars and so on and um, my idea was that if you pointed a camera at a whiteboard uh, you could you, you could still use it as a completely ordinary whiteboard so everybody would know how to use it there's no special course you had to go on how to learn learn how to use your electronic whiteboard you could just walk up to the whiteboard and use it but if you made certain marks on the board 
um, it might do something for you. So in my case, if you wrote the letter P and drew a little square around it and then stepped out of the way, the computer would grab an image of the board and say, aha, I can see a print command, and uh, it would print out a copy of the board for you. And... um, and it could do various other things. You could use it. You could use different symbols to stop and start video recordings, or um, to turn the lights up or down, or change the temperature of the air conditioning, or whatever. Simply by writing on the whiteboard. So your user interface to the computer was just the whiteboard, uh, and you didn't have to go near the computer. Any feedback was audio feedback. So if you did your little uh, P character P in a box, um, it would say printing, and that would, <laughs> that would tell you it had seen it. And if you did a P and a two in a box, it would say printing two copies. And uh, and so um, it was it was this idea what we now call you know kind of augmented environments. Um, and, and I was doing it through through video, and uh, partly because of what I'd discovered on the coffee pot that you can do fun things if you point cameras at things other than just people. Well, and and I my. As a coincidence, my my parents are both uh, still elementary school teachers here in the states, and right. while it's not a direct line, um, you know that that sort of technology is is starting to take over uh, elementary classrooms. At least here in the states, it's not universal yeah. yet. But yeah, that's that's the well, technology uh, yeah. today. I think it's I think it's it, it's interesting. I have a bit of a bugbear about this because. Um, we know that drawing is very, very important, right? Draw, we we started off by drawing cave paintings on the walls of caves. Uh, every office you go into, at least any interesting office, has whiteboards on the wall. Um, you know, classrooms all have blackboards and then whiteboards um, at the front of them. And one thing that technology really hasn't done very well for us yet is drawing uh, particularly drawing as a communications medium. So here we are, we're sitting in front of our two computers on opposite sides of the Atlantic, and I can send you files, and I can have video conversations with you, and mm-hmm. I can copy and paste URLs and so on. But if I actually wanted to draw a picture now, a little sketch on the back of an envelope that I might, you know, it would actually be quite difficult to get that to you because essentially computing hardware has developed around the mouse rather than around the pen. And uh, we're starting to get to the point where the value of drawing is beginning to be recognized. But I think the value of uh, live drawing um, transmitted over a distance accompanied by speech is is somewhere uh, we, we still got a long way to go on, mm. on uh, you know, really taking advantage of that. So after um, attaining your, your Ph.D., um, can you tell me about uh, the work that you do at um the Olivetti and, and Oracle Research Lab. Yeah, so Olivetti had an interesting lab in Cambridge at the time, um, run by Andy Hopper, who I mentioned earlier. And um, we worked on a variety of different things there. Uh, the lab was also partly funded by other people at different times. So when I first started, it was the Olivetti Research Lab. It then became the Olivetti and Oracle Research Lab. And in the end, it became one of AT&T's research labs. Um, And one of the big things we were looking at was um, network computing. So I don't know if you remember, but back then people were talking about network computers, the idea that you can maybe make a computer which, uh, you know, was really just a web browser. And uh, which, of course, you get now with some of the the Chrome OS stuff. But back then, this idea that could you actually do everything you wanted on a a web browser or maybe a web browser that had some Java. And so Sun Sun was really uh, on board with this. Sun did one of these. Yes. Oracle was very interested as well. And, And so 
um, people were making hardware that was designed essentially to be a network-only device. It didn't do anything without being connected to the network. And one of the things we were working on at the time was what became VNC. Many people may know the VNC protocol. VNC is um, essentially, it stands for virtual network computing. And it's a way of, it's usually used uh, as a way of letting you view the desktop of another computer from where you are. So um, nowadays, people have probably seen things like uh, GoToMeeting, GoToMyPC, mm -hmm. screen sharing on um, you know, on Skype, all, all of these kind of things. But back then, the ability to view another screen from a remote place was uh, fairly new and um, still a, a kind of really interesting idea. And so we had this idea that you would leave your computer running and you would travel around the world and you would use some thin client, in our case, a thin client bit of software uh, to get back to the screen you had left running. So you didn't need to carry everything with you. You'd just check into your hotel room and the network computer there would let you connect back to um, your desktop at home so you didn't have to, uh, to carry your big, expensive, uh, fragile computer around with you. Um, and the protocol that we created, and I, I was only a small part of this, this is mostly my friend Tristan Richardson who gets most of the credit for this, um, was um, a protocol called VNC, which stood for Virtual Network Computing. Uh, and there were a couple of interesting things about that. Uh, one, one of them was that um, it was an open source project. And that was something that was fairly new for the lab at the time. But um, we decided that uh, we would make this project essentially available to anybody who wanted it. And so um, VNC actually become, became really quite big and quite important. And a lot of uh, people use it now, not knowing that it's the, um, the VNC protocol that's, that's underneath it. And often, if you are uh, connecting to a screen of a machine that's not the one you're sitting in front of, it, it, it's quite often actually VNC underneath it. And, and my friends who worked on that um, went and set up the real VNC company, which is, is now the one that basically manages that standard. Mm -hmm. And, and this, uh, this notion of, of thin clients is something that sort of runs as a thread through work that you do um, for all of your career, really. Like, uh, you, I, you, tell me about this idea of, like, ultra-thin clients and, and developing IT, uh, IT solutions for the developing world. Yes. Well, what, what happened, um, sadly, in 2002, uh, the what was then the AT&T lab that we worked for, uh, was closed down. Everybody was closing all sorts of things down after the dot-com boom. And, um, and so, uh, so we, my friends and I were all thrown out on the street and we all had to go and find uh, other things to do. And um, it was actually a very good thing for Cambridge as a whole because many, many companies around Cambridge came out of uh, the people who had worked at that lab and employ an awful lot of people around Cambridge now. But I met up at this time with... Um, a guy named Martin King, uh, who was based in Seattle. And um, Martin had done very well out of um, inventing, you may remember, the T9 predictive text mm -hmm. system mm -hmm. that you used to use on, on old cell phones right. so that you didn't have to, you know, type 
uh, press the, the the five button three times to get the letter N or whatever it was, it would use the dictionary to try and work out what words um, what words you were typing. And uh, Martin had developed the technology and the company behind this, and uh, and had got some good patents on it, and had managed to sell the whole thing to AOL at just the right time. So he was uh, he had some resources. He was looking for a new project. Uh, so was I. Um, and uh, and he, when um, when the lab closed down, he got in touch with us, and because basically he wanted to hire the entire VNC team, uh, but the other guys had already got this idea that they were going to go and do something with VNC on their own. But I ended up getting on very well with Martin, and uh, and we started to talk about other things we might do with this concept of um, sending graphics over networks very fast, and. What Martin wanted to try was essentially how fast could you make something like VNC? Imagine that you've got a screen image and you are sending it over a network. Could you do it so fast that you couldn't actually tell that you were on a network? So it would be the same as a VGA lead or HDMI lead uh, from the point of view of of the user experience. Right, right. And we worked out that actually you could, though you had to make special hardware to do this, because um, at the time, anyway, the problem with uh, a protocol like VNC, which was designed to run on general purpose computers, was that it went through all the layers of the software and networking stack, and that kind of slowed it down a bit. Even if the network between the two ends was very, very fast, it was quite hard to make it a completely transparent experience. But we did some maths on the back of an envelope, and we worked out that actually, in theory... Uh, even on a 100 megabit Ethernet network, which was what we had by then, um, you ought to be able to get to the point where, for most normal use, you couldn't actually tell that the screen you were sitting in front of was connected to the computer by a general-purpose network um, rather than, say, a VGA lead. And so we thought, what could you do with this? Well, one of the things was that... um, Linux, which I mentioned earlier, was starting to become much more popular and viable on the desktop. And Linux was a multi-task, a multi-user operating system in a way that at the time Windows and the Mac and so on weren't. And so what you could maybe do is take the power of Moore's law, which meant that my computer now was many times, maybe eight times faster than my computer of just a few years ago, and you could maybe allow eight users to use that computer um, without having to buy eight computers. Now, uh, this is important for various reasons. Um, it's one of the things that interested us was uh, the environmental impact of computers. So I had I, my, my way of illustrating this at the time was um, that we learned it took a quarter of a ton of fossil fuels to build a PC. Now, if you take a number like that and you multiply it by... Uh, the number of PCs that were shipping each year. Hundreds you of went, millions, yeah. Yeah, you get this huge number, which is really hard to visualize. So so my, my uh, uh, visual aid for this was I imagined, suppose you got um, a whole load of cars going from New York to L.A., all the way across the states, uh, nose to tail on the highway. They're all stationary. They're, that's about a million cars if they're Ford Tauruses. That's how I worked it out at the time. <laughs> okay, so that's about a million cars to go across the states. Now imagine they're filling up four lanes of the highway. So you've got about four million cars, and um, none of them are moving because all of their tanks are empty. 
So you go across, all the way across America, filling out from empty to full every single one of those four million cars. That was about how much fossil fuels we were using to build PCs every day. And though in the global scheme of things, you know, it, PC production didn't rate high on the on the fossil fuel use, you know, scale, it was still a quite a significant amount. So there was, could we could we make a more environmentally friendly way of doing computing? But there was also, could we make a more affordable way of doing computing? Because computers then would typically cost um, five or six hundred dollars. But um, most of the world, certainly half the world was living on around a dollar a day. And so that means that a computer would cost you more than a year's income, maybe 18 months income. And if you think now about your income over a year and imagine that that's what your next computer would cost you, um, that, uh, that really puts a different spin on how many you can give to your kids and how easily you can put them in classrooms. Uh, and so this whole idea of providing um, internet access, IT access in general to the developing world, we thought maybe if we can take a multi-user operating system like Linux and some way of creating desktop images and sending them over networks to a very cheap device which could display the pixels, then you could um, plug maybe eight users into a single PC for substantially less than the cost of, of eight PCs. So that was the start of this project which we called Ndio. And Dio is a Swahili word. It means yes in Swahili. And there's a whole long story behind why we chose that as well. But so um, so that was this uh, not-for-profit that we started, which was trying to make IT more affordable, more sustainable, more accessible to people, basically by um, by by using some of the pixels over networks technology. My life seems to revolve around sending graphics over networks. <laughs> right. um, but uh, so it was like a very, very lightweight VNC protocol um, and some very, very dumb but very, very fast hardware, uh, essentially a single chip um, that could receive the pixels over the network, slam them on the screen, uh, doing as little as possible in between. And um, it was a great project and we did installations in um, uh, in internet cafes, in schools, in you know far-flung places around the world and um, and and, uh, and and that was in Dio. Um, out of it uh, came a commercial organization because Martin uh, essentially funded this for a while on the understanding that some commercial thing would come out of it eventually. And indeed, what did come out of it was um, uh, a technology for sending pixels at high speed, not over Ethernet networks as we were doing it, but primarily over things like USB. And that became a company called DisplayLink, which uh, makes products that essentially let you get USB hubs and other types of uh, accessory technology for, for various different types of um, mobile and desktop devices and let you attach, uh, it, it let you do the graphics for the screens over networks like USB. And so uh, that kind of grew out of um, out of the Indio work. But so so, uh, yeah, that was great fun. And it was it was interesting to see both the sort of uh, not for profit charitable side of, of the technology, but also, you know, doing the whole 
VC-based startup kind of thing, which was what DisplayLink became. Right, the the technology that that becomes commercializable. That becomes it, yeah. Right. You can buy it today embedded in many monitors. If your monitor lets you plug into your laptop via, um, it, usually it'll let you plug in via HDMI and uh, and via you know VGA. But if it lets you plug in via USB, um, then that's probably because it's got a DisplayLink chip in it, and that has the big advantage that you can then plug as many monitors as you like into your laptop uh rather than just you know however many sockets there happen to be in the um you know for video connectors um well if if i haven't taken up too much of your time i'm <laughs> i'm curious um what what you've been up to in the last few years and and what you find interesting i mean you've been involved in so many different interesting <laughs> uh a- aspects of technology over the years what what are you working on now and, and what do you what do you find interesting coming down the pike in the future yeah, so I have I have two hats that I wear at the moment. Most of the week, I, I have a little software company called Telemark, which um, develops essentially um, Internet of, I, I suppose would call it Internet of Things technologies now, uh, though we didn't really uh, know that phrase when we began it. Um, mostly it's to do with digital signage. So it's screens on walls in public places, in hospitals, in doctor's surgeries and things like that. But very much, again, using web-based technologies and network technologies. So this idea of graphics uh, over the network still hasn't kind of left me. So I do that uh, most of the week. But then one day a week, I'm back in Cambridge University and I'm wearing a sort of at least a pseudo-academic hat. And I'm even back in the same group I used to be in quarter of a century ago uh, when I was doing my PhD. And um, what we're looking at there is um, it's a project called Endeavor. And Endeavor stands for, roughly, Enhancing the Driver Experience Through Vision Research. So this is a project that's largely funded by Jaguar Land Rover. And um, it's the the group in the university has a lot of traditional strengths in vision, in machine learning, in those kind of related technologies, in analyzing the emotions of people. Um, so you point a camera at someone and try and work out whether they're happy or sad or bored or excited or whatever. And what we wanted to do with this project was look at um, not so much the whole self-driving car concept, though I think that's fascinating and I could talk for a whole separate hour about self-driving cars, but um, but as we are at the moment, how can we use some of these technologies to um, improve the experience that a driver has when driving a car? So the kind of things we're looking at are, um, if I'm driving down the road and I'm using a sat-nav, the sat-nav will say, um, turn left in 100 meters or 100 yards. Whereas if you're sitting beside me and we're driving down the road and, uh, and you're giving me directions, you'll probably say, you know, turn left just after the, the traffic lights or turn, turn right over there where that yellow car is coming out. And those are very different types of instructions. And so we're looking at, can we use vision and other technologies to make sat-navs, for example, give instructions more like humans would give them, which are perhaps easier for human drivers to, to parse and understand how, you know, not all of us are very good at knowing when 150 meters has, has, has gone by, but you can see the yellow car down there. So that's one part of it. Other things we're looking at are, um, if you're, if your car or your phone or your sat-nav or your media system wants to tell you something at the moment while you're driving along, um, they usually just do so at the time they know they've got something to tell you. So uh, you may be trying to negotiate a difficult junction, coming onto the highway, there's a big truck coming down beside you, you're looking over your shoulder and your car goes, ping, 
to tell you that you need a service in the next thousand miles or something like that. That's really not the time uh, you need to get that bit of right, information. Right. right? There are some bits of information that are important that might be safety related or navigation related or whatever. And there are some which really aren't like, you know, your mother has just tweeted about you. It's not something you need to know when you're in a safety critical situation. So um, we've been looking at prioritizing all of the different messages that uh, your car and your in-car systems may want to to tell you, and then working out the times at which you are safely distractible, <laughs> so that uh, so that you know we can we can get the benefit of some of these new technologies that are coming on board without making making life very dangerous. In the so process. it's it's a combination of of sort of predictive technology, but also um, situational awareness. Uh, that's, and that's right. And, and looking at how you're using the car, looking at whether you're, you know, we've got cameras pointing at the drivers. Can we, um, can we see when you're looking over your shoulder? Can we see when you look bored? Can we see when you're, dis- you're, you're clearly not looking at the road or when you are looking at the road? You know, there must be all sorts of ways that we can enhance the driver experience um, uh, using these kind of technologies. Yeah, that's, so, that's so interesting because w- w- with all the talk of, of driverless car technology, uh, that you read about lately, it's all about the cameras looking out, and yeah. th- that's interesting. Yeah. That I hadn't thought of that before about the the cameras looking in to to aid the driver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we, you know, we're doing some stuff with cameras looking out as well, but I think um, that there's going to be an intermediate stage. We're starting to get to the point of of driverless cars, and I fr- frankly I can't wait. I'm I'm just longing to get you know as soon as I can get a car that will drive itself that I can afford, I will I will be doing so. Um, but um if you yes turn those cameras inwards and uh, and look at you know what the users are doing is is the passenger talking to you at the moment um you know and it may work the other way as well as not just reducing distractions but if you're actually on a very long straight highway and you've been doing it for half an hour and you're getting bored and sleepy and so on maybe it's actually useful if the car gives you some information to keep you awake you know you are now passing the church of st andrew which was <laughs> built in 1540 or whatever um, is uh you know it could actually be important for maintaining your um, alertness and awareness as well as kind of reducing the stress of of uh, of driving as well so so that's kind of uh fun but i'm very interested in what's happening in the whole world of uh, of cars and transport at the moment i um one of the things i keep telling people i'm i'm longing for is um not so much a a self-driving car but a self-driving motorhome or rv says so i love yes, this idea yes. I, right i just love this idea especially here right where we, we we've got the uh the channel tunnel that'll take us to europe so i can imagine one you know not very long from now i'll pick up my iphone on a thursday night and i will summon my uh my motorhome from from out of town and it'll turn up and i'll get in with my wife and my dog and a good movie and a nice bottle of wine and i'll say um chamonix please or or venice or whatever <laughs> and uh, and then we'll watch a movie and we'll go to sleep and we'll wake up in the alps or in venice or somewhere like that uh, and uh, and we'll walk the dog and we'll have a nice weekend and then it'll drive us home again and if you don't want to have a big motorhome you know when you get to the alps because it's an awkward thing to drive around um you just tell your regular car to follow you well and that's interesting too because if you extend that notion out you could 
you could imagine a future where maybe people don't have really uh, fixed locations, you know, fixed residences, because yeah. you could always take up and go with with everything you need and, and yeah. go and wherever you wanted. You can, and, and you can do that on the large scale, right? You can have some big mobile uh, office home thing that, you know, can take you from place A to place B while you're working. Um, but you can also imagine what does it do to, um, for example, how far people are willing to commute, where you're willing to live uh, in the world. If, you're, if your job's in, you know, downtown Manhattan, where would you, you know, you could live much further away, perhaps, if you could um, have breakfast while you're driving there, right? Or you could be, you could be catching up on your sleep on your commute um, in a way that, you know, obviously you can do if you've got really good public transport, but that doesn't really work for everybody. So, yeah, I think I think that's going to be transformative. I've just got uh, a, a new toy myself, which is uh, an electric car, um, which I'm which I'm loving. Uh, and it'll do a little bit of this. It will do uh, not as much as, say, some of the, the Google cars are doing or even Teslas are doing at the moment, but um, it will, under certain circumstances, when you're moving slowly, it will, you know, follow the car in front if you're in heavy traffic traffic um it certainly has this adaptive cruise control so that um uh, you can you know you set the cruise control but if you get too close to the car in front it starts to slow down and things like that and that's all done through vision that's all done through um a cheap camera basically i it doesn't even have radar on my car it's just a camera that looks out through the windscreen and uh it's amazing to me now that how far we've come from the days when, you know, it was outrageous to point a camera at a coffee pot because, you know, the camera and the computer that was controlling it uh, cost so many times the cost of the coffee pot that we were pointing at. Whereas now, you know, my car has at least two cameras in it and that's when they're still only looking out. They're not looking at the driver and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the passenger. So um, I think it's very exciting. It's been, it's, it's, it's great to see how, how the world of images and, um, uh, both transmitted over networks and the world of image processing and image understanding has changed in the relatively small number of years, I like to think, uh, since I, you know, kind of first got my hands on a, a camera connected to a computer. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting how that, that thread has gone all the way through your career. And and actually, you know, maybe that's a that's a good way to, to end this talk because let 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 let's do come back to that that notion that uh you know, you, you first learn these lessons by pointing a camera at a coffee pot. <laughs> um, you, you said, you know, kind of joking a bit that, you know, maybe nothing that you've done in your career will will get as much attention <laughs> as that dumb coffee pot. Uh-huh. Do, do you get annoyed when every couple of years people like me <laughs> talk, call oh, you no, up and ask no. to talk about that? Oh, no, I love it. I, uh, to be honest, um, I, uh, I feel a little guilty because some of the other people involved in this um, haven't had as much publicity either because they're more camera shy than I am or they're in other parts of the world or whatever. Um, but yes, I, I've been dining out on this for years. I I, uh, I get invited to uh, to do television interviews and so on quite a lot whenever they want to do something about the early days of the web and, uh, you know, they can't get hold of Tim Berners-Lee then they want somebody with a British accent. <laughs> they often call me up uh, and uh, it's... Um, so so it's it's it, it it's been a fun experience and it goes on being a fun experience and i think you could draw you know sometimes with i don't know whether with much justification but i do try and draw bigger lessons from this about um 
the reason that the web was such a success and continues to be such a success um, is nicely encapsulated in that coffee pot idea, right? Because we didn't have to ask anybody's permission at all to take a bit of data that we had, uh, make it available to the world in a form that anybody in the world could see. Uh, we did it in one afternoon, pretty much. And, um, and it became, you know, a kind of internet hit. And that, cap- you know, captures so much of, of, of what the web's about. Um, it made the stuff more accessible. It didn't require much work at, at the back end. And um, we had no idea we were going to do it. We had no idea it was going to become big. And the design of the web, the simplicity of HTML, the simplicity of HTTP, the open protocols and so on, the fact that it was never controlled by a corporation or, you know, uh, based on um, on commercial software, all of these things... Um, enabled the coffee pot to happen as a small kind of humorous example of essentially the bigger the bigger web picture why the web worked why the web took off when a whole load of other systems which had many of its characteristics were just never quite so successful well and and if you'll indulge me i mean again i I think i called it just a dumb coffee pot but you hit on something that i think is the the key thing when you were describing it at the beginning um, it's, it's data, like, because it's almost binary data. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're telling people <laughs> coffee pot is full coffee pot is not. <laughs> yeah. Full, yeah. Know? And so when, when we think of where we're going, when they talk about things like the internet of things and, and, and all this stuff that's supposedly coming down the pike, um, it is about data and, and it's about maybe going to a world where it's impossible not to know anything. You know, yeah. like the, the the analogy I would that I always use with people that is sort of kind of similar to the coffee pot idea is like, you know, there's a specific uh, bench in Paris where I asked my wife to marry me, mm-hmm. and right now there could be someone sitting on it. Right now there could be snow on it. Right now, you know, I don't know, but that data we now have the ability to to know that information. You know what I mean? Yes, that's so, right. In, in, uh... in the same way that knowing if a coffee pot is full or not yeah. <laughs> across the other side of the world, that's sort of what, what everything seems to be moving towards. That's right. And what's trivial for some people is important for others, right? Anyone else looking at that bench in Paris may may have no idea that it's so special to you. And uh, and so it's really hard to predict um, what's going to be important for individuals, what's going to be important for certain groups. For us, it was about regular and easy and fair access to caffeine. You know, for other people, it's about, you know, nostalgia and remembering memories. Um, someone came up, my friend John Norton has written a very good mm-hmm. book um, about the early days. It's called um, A Brief History of the Future. Mm-hmm. I have it. Um, yeah. And uh, and he's he that's a that's a great book for uh, the, you know, the early the early years of, of the Internet and some of the people who are involved. But he at a talk um, recently described the Internet as I think I think the talk was entitled something like Vint Cerf's Amazing Surprise Generating Machine. Right. And uh, and I think that is a big part of the Internet, the fact that its design means that no one could predict what was going to be done with it. Mm-hmm. Right? If you had built a system which was only good for video conferencing, for example, then we would probably have amazing video conferencing now. But, you know, would we have had all of the other things that, that, that we get? And the, the brilliance about the Internet and then the web, of course, that built on top of that was that it made so few specifications about what could or couldn't be done with it and uh, that it is it really is a surprise generating machine um 
And uh, if we, uh, it's like sometimes on these TV interviews and so on, people ask me, so what's your prediction for the next, you know, 15, 20 years? And I, and I basically say that if you could predict it, then it wouldn't be the web, right? If you could predict it, it wouldn't be the internet because the whole nature of the internet has been to allow us to do things that we could never have predicted uh, in a way that perhaps almost no other technology has ever done. Well, uh, Quentin Stafford Fraser, thank you so much for (laughs) using your career as sort of like, um, you know, a framework for for all of these things that that we've been talking about on this podcast (laughs) and and that we're trying to explore that have happened over the last 20 years and and now beyond. Well, thank you, Brian. It's been been great fun and uh, I shall go on following the podcast with enthusiasm. There's lots of great episodes on there I still have to catch up with and I'm sure there'll be lots of great ones in the future. Thank you very much. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.